A mad scientist with incredibly unsafe work habits creates a substance that might take over the world. I think this is the plot of Flubber. Hello and welcome back, everybody. I'm Ryan Whitley. I'm Jessica Bird. And I'm Damian Smith. And together we're Whiskey and the Weird. It's season two and it's getting buggy around here as we are tackling <laughs> crawling horror, creeping tales of the insect weird. Edited by Daisy Butcher and Jeanette Leaf, it is a part of the British Library's Tales of the Weird series, which collects weird stories of yesteryear from mostly obscure authors and compiles them according to a theme. Each season, we're going to bring you an exploration of a different book in the series, and each episode, we're tackling one of the stories in a full spoiler sort of way. All right, Jess, uh, maybe we should tell them what they're reading. We're reading The Blue Beetle. A Confession by A.G. Gray Jr. Excellent. All right. We've got some bar talk to do tonight before we get into that. So, uh, Jessica, what are you drinking tonight? I am actually having a beer tonight. I'm drinking a Myers Creek Honey Kolsch. Um, We had a few really nice days in a row here, and I bought it to drink while I was gardening. I thought it was thematic. There's some bees on the can. Mm, nice. Um, it has a, <laughs> a ton of flavor without being um, overly sweet. It's not, even though it's a honey colch, it's not as like kind of that thick honey flavor that you get with some canned colches. It's also brewed super locally, just a couple of minutes from here in Casanovia. Oh, and, very and cool. And what does a nice day mean for you this time of year? Okay. So <laughs> right now it's like, I don't know. We'll say we'll round up and say it's 40 degrees, Uh, but a few days ago it was right. A few days ago it was like nearly 70. So my dog and I sat in the yard. We did some weeding. uh, A few days ago I went to the beach. Yeah. (sighs) Great. Cool. Shove it up your umbrella. (laughs) Um, You just got back from a a Costa Rica vacation. (laughs) Well, it was Puerto Rico. Thank you very much. I beg your pardon. (laughs) But you're right. Yeah, I did. Right. Only one of us has been suffering with it. <laughs> um, while I've been suffering, I did read a really good graphic novel. It's called The Nice House on the Lake by James Tinian IV, Alvaro Martinez Bueno, Jordi Belair, an assortment of letterers, other colorists, other cover artists. Um, it's a trade that just came out in March. Um, it is flying off the shelves, apparently. I had to go to like four different comic shops Ooh. to try to find it. It is uh, apocalyptic end of the world horror, um, but it's set kind of on like a friend's weekend getaway with a bunch of like people who knew each other in high school and college. It's fun. It's really scary. And there is both really good monster design. So like the drawings of the monsters and terrible characters, it's really good and interesting. Um, and it's also very smart book design. So there's a lot of characters, but they all have like symbols associated with them. So you can tell what story is happening based on these symbols kind of moving around. Um, It's the first five issues. So it will be an ongoing series. Um, But if you're looking for something scary and comic booky, the nice house on the lake. Speaking of James Tinian, the fourth, which the name just stands out because it's not often you see a lot of uh, (laughs) uh, graphic novel authors that are the fourth. (laughs) Uh, but he, he, I believe he also wrote the series Something is Killing the Children. Yes, yeah. which is another really good So I've read a couple of volumes of that, and I thought that that was really interesting. And he created a, a, a really unique, fascinating, and really brutal world 
Uh, but I was definitely drawn in very quickly. So I'll yeah, definitely check this, this one out. Like a mix of that, but then also like you're on vacation with your buds that you've known forever. Oh, cool. So you're also cool. just kind of hanging out while the world is ending. Yeah, part part Animal House, part Walking Dead. You know, <laughs> gentle, you a gentle blend. <laughs> Amy, and how about you? What do you got in your glass tonight? Uh, so tonight I am, I know I get lambasted by Padre here for not drinking <laughs> enough scotch. So I decided to go hard and I'm drinking the Glenlivet Nadora. It is a 16 year ah. uh, natural cask strength scotch. I think anybody who knows an iota <laughs> about uh, uh, scotches or the movie Swingers uh, can tell you <laughs> <laughs> about the Glenlivet. Really, any Glen will do, I believe is the quote. And it's good. I mean, this is, I guess it's a hundred dollar bottle of scotch and I got it as a gift a while ago. I'm not a scotch drinker, but I am liking this. It it's potent. It definitely needs to rest with some water or <laughs> over right. a cube for a while because of that cask strengthness. But I, I get a lot of complexity. It's not just a big blast of uh, smoke or sweet. Uh, it's not a throat burner. It really is complex and beautiful and I'm, I'm liking it. So I guess if you got to start somewhere, start at the, the start at the hundred dollar one, okay. I guess. <laughs> So thanks to whoever gave this to me. I don't remember who you are, but uh, I'm appreciating thank it right you notes now. in the mail. Again, that's hey, that's the Glenlivet Nadura. Uh, ah, Slancho then to you. Uh, Slancho to you, sir. Uh, as far as I just read a really fantastic book. And speaking of apocalyptic uh, themes, Jess, I read Severance by Ling Ma. Uh, it is a, a hyper-realistic take that gave sort of this ominous post infection, very, very like overlapping with the COVID response on a global global level. But instead it was more of the cordyceps fungal infection that we saw in games like the last of us, uh, that basically it's a fungal spore that renders people in this, I would say mentally neutered state where they just Mm. keep doing the same rote day-to-day tasks over and over until they eventually just die. So there's, yeah, there's, (laughs) 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 Mm. Uh, very true. There might be a metaphor in there. (laughs) It really might. I mean, look at the title of the book for God's sakes. Uh, Anyway, but it, it was really good because instead of taking it like, you know, this infection turns people into like bloodthirsty, mindless creatures that are just on a murderous bent. It isn't that it is showing the slow decay of society and like abandoning of day-to-day culture just because people are dying off because of this highly contagious, ultimately like um, neutralizing disease that nobody really knows how to handle. Uh, and it's all told from the perspective of our, or the narrator. And she's a very fascinating character and the, the realism behind it is just so it's palpable. It's just, it was such a good book. I think I read it in two huh. sittings. So again, that's severance by Ling Ma. All right. That sounds pretty to the good list. too. Please yeah, do. That sounds great. So tonight I am also drinking scotch as you might've guessed it by this point, I'm drinking the Glen Morangi, uh, just the standard 10 year old variety. It's one of my go-to scotches. Uh, it is sweet. It is uh, slightly, slightly salty. It's just as really a, uh, a charming scotch, and unlike the one that <laughs> that Damien is drinking, this actually would be a good one to begin with if you're looking for an entry point scotch. Uh, this is an easy drinking. If you don't scotch. have his kind of friend, maybe start with this bottle. Uh, I think they're famous for having the tallest copper still pots in, in Scotland, uh, if I remember my my Scottish uh, Scotch lore correctly. What I've been enjoying, I've been making my way through a bunch of Shutter movies 
because finally, 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 thank you, they got a native Samsung TV app, so I don't have to go through the Amazon Prime oh. channel anymore. Everybody celebrate. Everybody yes. celebrate. Ryan got great. his native Samsung TV <laughs> shutter app. Listen, I'm actually thrilled about yeah, it. Yeah, it makes browsing and, and hunting stuff up so much easier. But I watched one of their newer exclusive films called Hellbender. I don't know if either of you have seen that one yet. Yes. It's a, it's a story of witches. Um, and it's a modern story of a mother and a daughter. And the mother is trying to protect the daughter who is coming of age mm-hmm. from not necessarily discovering her witchy powers, but perhaps using them. And and as you can already guess, you know, when you try to protect your children from doing that one thing, that's the one thing they then go and do. Yeah. Um, so it's <laughs> not overly scary. There are a few shocking moments and a few gory moments, but just a really well-written story and beautifully filmed. I think I was most impressed by the fact that almost everyone in the cast, and it does have a small cast, but almost everyone in the cast is from the same family. It's the, oh. yes. it's the the husband, the wife, and two daughters, and they all act in the film. And they they're... also have another movie on Shutter. Oh, good! I'll have to look that uh, one up. But they're called the they're the Adams Family, and their production company is Adams Family Films, which is mag- magnificent. That is so, wonderful. Yeah, the, uh, that was a lot of fun. Other, the other film is called The Deeper You Dig, and I think okay. one of the sisters maybe isn't in it. But it's the same mother-daughter same mother, daughter. Daughter combo. Yes. Nice. And, yeah, well, they, they yeah. were all great actors and actresses. It was really a well-done movie. And again, it's one. It's not one that's super, super scary. So if you're looking for a lighter night on Shudder, Hellbender would be a good choice. <laughs> oh, um, Hellbender. I, I thought we were discussing the new Pixar movie, Turning Red. Okay, all right. This makes a ton of sense. <laughs> that was good too, though. Um, and then if, if I may, if I may be allowed a moment of personal privilege, mm. um, I had a wonderful experience tonight sharing a movie that I have been waiting to share with my son Jackson. Tonight we watched The Goonies together. He <gasps> loved it. Oh, incredible. It was Samsung so native shutter app and Goonies with your son. <laughs> I'm telling you it was a bad Is this night. the best day ever? Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know whether I watched the movie more or whether I watched his reactions more as as oh, he uh, as he interacted with the with the traps that they were trying to solve and of course <laughs> hollering at them. Don't do that. Uh, oh, my really? favorite moment was when he asked early on when they're in the restaurant, he asked, why does that man keep slapping those other two men? And uh-huh. I said, that man is their mother. That man is their mother. <laughs> Throw mama from the train. Talented actor. She has passed. But not forgotten. Slancho to her. <laughs> Slancho to her. So that's what we're reading. That's what we're watching. That's what we're drinking. And now we are on to the Blue Beetle colon a confession. The trouble with A.G. Gray Jr. is that no one knows who they are. (laughs) Not even our esteemed editors, Butcher and Leaf. (laughs) Clearly, it's a pseudonym for someone, but as to who is anyone's guess. Butcher and Leaf surmise a few things, including it is likely a man, since the suffix junior, or as it's presented here, J-U-N period, would not typically be applied to a woman, but that could be part of the very clever ruse. They also note that the publication in which the story appeared, the January 1857 edition of The Train, was edited by Edmund Yates, who in turn was friends with Lewis Carroll. In the March 1856 edition, Carroll's poem Solitude was published, likely the first time he used his nom de plume, His real name, by the way, is Charles Ludwig Dodgson. 
Yates liked to publish his friends, like Carol, and other associates. So perhaps Gray was a person who ran in that same circle. Perhaps even, and this is my own internet sleuthing here, perhaps (laughs) even someone like John Ruskin, who was a nature writer, a myth fan, and a societal critic. Or perhaps it could have been Violet Greville, who would have been only 17 at the time of this publication, but that doesn't necessarily matter. And she was also published by Yates anonymously for over two years before she revealed herself to him and decided thereafter to publish under her own name. Now, Carol and Yates ran around with both of those people in their circle of friends. And so perhaps it could be that A.G. Gray Jr. is one of them. Uh, I think the most startling discovery I made in all of this research was that, as it turns out, we know less about A.G. Gray Jr. than we do about Anonymous. <laughs> and, and that's that's it, folks. I mean, that's Butcher and Leaf. I don't know where they found their information, but it was far, far more than I could find. There is nothing out there about this person. So that takes us All to right. our story summary tonight. Fair and I think, enough. Damien, you've got that for us. You got it, Padre. But first, I'm going to do some internet sleuthing and discover the true identity of A.G. Gray Jr. Okay, found it. Let's move <laughs> on to the story. The Blue Beetle a Confession in just under a few minutes. Uh, it starts off with an unnamed character kicking off the story, talking about how life had to emerge and just burst forth from inorganic matter at some point in history. And after a few pages of this really shoddy Carl Sagan observation stream of con- consciousness, uh, the narrator assures the reader of what we, we don't we don't know yet, but they are addressing <laughs> a reader that his pursuit to create life in his perfect laboratory he set up was a very passionate one. So passionate, in fact, that when he and his quote little wife with tears standing in her deep blue eyes. Remember that one. Yeah. Visited their closest friend C. Uh, There, there are blanks after C. We don't know C's full name. I think it's count Dracula. I'll explain it later. (laughs) um, The name is definitely stricken to preserve confidence. I guess Uh, the narrator happens to stumble upon this wee little, you know, leather bound volume in C's library while visiting. And after flipping through a few pages, he uncovers a French translation from Arabic sources covering the science of alchemy. And lo, a few nuggets on transmutation that end up triggering this eureka moment for our fledgling scientist slash spontaneous progenitor. It gives him the inspiration as to what he's been missing to create life. So from this, he puts the book back where it belongs, I'm sure, because he's a good friend and he doesn't mess up the order. And he tells his wife, whose name is Annie, we find out, not just little wife with tears in her eyes, um, (laughs) and his friend C, that he has to go back to his lab in London because he realizes what was missing in his prior attempts. And guess what it was, folks? It's not a surprise. It's electricity. (laughs) So maybe Mary Shelley should take some note. Oh, wait. Mary Shelley. Mary Shelley wrote it 40 years prior. 40 years before, yes. This is not a novel concept. Um, Anyway, so he makes Lab Fall in London (laughs) and instantly starts whipping up his trusted base solution, which I guess is some blue tinted ionic bath of what I ended up researching is copper sulfate. Um, the narrator calls it a salt of copper, but because of its customary blue color, it's, it's highly likely to be copper sulfate, which creates a crystalline blue that we'll discuss in just a bit. Um, and some other, you know, liquids and sauce. I don't know. It's got the same science that we remember from the mummy's soul, which is not very scientific whatsoever. Yep. 
Uh, so he throws a couple anodes in a couple wires into these things that are attached to battery. He just lets this electric solution cook like he's making hydrolyzed water, I guess. Uh, and then he waited, <laughs> right? Uh, and he, he waits and nothing really happens at first. Uh, he notes that the solution was becoming deeper in this brilliant blue color. And when he changed out the batteries one time, when he pulled out the wires to change the batteries, he gets some like fresh electric juice going through there. Uh, a few drops of the solution fell to the floor with a quote hissing sound and, uh, and quote, as they touched the ground, they burst into flame. So obviously we were dealing with some, um, some pretty potent stuff. I think it sounds like Blair's 3am's hot sauce, but uh, you know, I digress. <laughs> I'm sure it's something that's even uh, more volatile. Uh, he, he also notes that there's this like pretty steady stream of vapors coming from this trough of solution. <laughs> and he's already proven that he's not the brightest bulb in the bunch. So he decides to stick around, even though he's having wild delusions of grabbing this vial and then drinking it. Uh, so he, he decides maybe this isn't the, isn't the best idea, but he's still sticking around. Eventually he gets so fume high that he passes out and only realizes what happened after he awakens the next day to be told by a doctor friend who saw him passed out in his lab. Don't know what they were doing there that they had a brave, this like hot box he had going on to bust in and pull him out of there before obviously he suffocated. <laughs> so he's, he's sick and like broken down at this stage. But of course his first question is, did you touch any of the apparatus? It, this, he was assured. No, <laughs> nothing was touched. We just opened the windows to kind of vent the place out. So he falls back asleep, I guess satisfied. And he stays bedridden for a couple days, like three or four days. Cause he's just totally wiped out. Eventually he regains his strength and this stupid dude just dashes right back to his lab and checks on his equipment and his experiment. All he finds are rusted wires. Most of the solution at this stage is evaporated and there's only this like sludge, this fungal sludge growth in the bottom of this vessel. Well, he's scraping away at it. He's feeling pretty lost and destitute, but he starts scra scraping away at what he calls an opal colored mold and discovers underneath these cerulean crystals structure. And he chips away at it and entombed inside this crystalline structure is a glistening blue scarabaeus. There it is. Yep, We have another scarabaeus folks, another scarabaeus. So as if, as if like magic, as if exposed to oxygen or maybe feeling its mother nearby, <laughs> this thing unfurls itself. It's got these long, like knobby antennae. You know, we've sort of heard this before. These felonous, what do you call like really thin veiny wings? There's a word for it. It's a V word. Vellum. Yeah. Like vellum, like vellum. Uh, anyway, this thing like basically comes to life, looks up at him, sort of stares at him for a little bit, inspects him. And he's now aghast. The narrator scientist is just like terrified and fascinated. So this thing sees him, kind of surveys its surroundings and then starts emitting a death tick. We got another sound. We, we got another sound. This one's a death tick. It's not the chirp. It's a death tick. <laughs> So instead of, you know, learning from all other literature on insects, it seems, and dashing this thing to bits instantly, the narrator <laughs> decides to see what happens if he lets it live. Not only that, but he decides he's got to give it some food. So he goes and he gets a sugar cube, comes back, tries to give it a sugar cube. The beetle yeah, has it, wants right? nothing to do with it. <laughs> he's feeling a little troubled. All of a sudden he hears a whining at his feet. He looks down. It's his wife's favorite dog, Lilette. The dog is like, play with me, love me. I guess that's what dog whines are. And uh, because the beetle isn't eating the sugar, the scientist feels kind of bummed about it. He throws the sugar cube down on the dog. The dog eats the sugar. He then leaves the room and closes and locks the door with the dog inside his lab with the beetle. Oh, I'm cool. sure we can guess what happens <laughs> now. The death tick starts to get louder and surprise, surprise, Lilette is later found dead. 
seemingly poisoned. But it's no big deal to our narrator who promises his wife a new favorite dog to ease her suffering, which is what you do when your wife's dog dies. But he still neglects to find and destroy this insect. A few days later, a servant girl within his estate turns up dead with a five-sided pricked bite on her breast, glowing in that same blue color that the beetle is. So, gee, I, I, I wonder what did that. Uh, the narrator freaks out. He sends his wife to be with C to get her out of the house and waits in the house alone, sends home all his staff to see if he can discover and trap this beetle, but nothing. He then gets word that his friend C is dying from some undefined illness. So he dashes off to inspect the situation at C's house only to discover that C has a five-sided prick bite or a five-dotted prick bite. It's like the it's like the five side of a die. So it's like that, you know, it's like an X pattern bite on the side of his neck, the same exact pattern and C dies. So go figure the narrator vows to kill the thing at this stage took him long enough, but now he's like, we can't let this go on, but he can't find it anywhere. And that evening, I I can't remember if it was that evening or pretty soon after, like a few nights later, he walks into a moonlit bedroom and sees his beautiful wife laying in bed, like glowing under moonbeams. And then as he gets closer, he sees a giant blue beetle just perched on her forehead. And it starts death ticking at him and he's like, no. So he reaches down and grabs it off her forehead and then tries to crush it, but it bites him. And the bite sends a jolt of pain to him where he opens up his hand and the bug flies off. It goes out an open window. He's done. He realizes the error of his ways. He realizes he released this monster into the world and no one will know how to handle it. And obviously it's highly uh, destructive to the human race. And he knows his wife is a goner. And he also realizes that he only has a few hours left to live because of this highly toxic bite. And so here is where he ends his confession, which is what we're reading. Hence, the Blue Beetle, colon, a confession, end of story. And that is one of the single most incompetent protagonists that we've encountered <laughs> so far. Negative points to him, but plus one points to you, or plus one fingers of whiskey to you, Damien, for deploying the exclamative low in low. your summary. Yes, that low, was excellent. Low behold. <laughs> Well, uh, what did the two of you think of this confession? I liked the format of it. I like the idea of reading a confession. You know what you're getting. It's in the title. I didn't love the writing. I thought that the story was even maybe our most unbelievable so far. Like, I think we've had a couple of kind of clumsy scientists, but like no one's locked the dog in a right. room with a mystery bug and a vat of frothing blue juice and just been like, oh, time for a sandwich. <laughs> that my tiny wife will make me. My little, tiny little. Wife will make oh, my little wife. Me. Yeah, I, I got to agree, Jess. Um, this wasn't one that really grabbed me. I do like the idea of I'm reading a confession of somebody who did something that they shouldn't have. And now it's, it's uh, no pun intended, come back to bite them. But there were many <laughs> things about the story that to me, were clumsy and not just the actions of the protagonist, but in the writing. For example, I believe Damien mentioned the friend's name with C with a dash after it. Like you're, go you're, you're writing a piece of fiction. Go ahead and name your other characters. <laughs> it's, it's fine, right? We, right? you know, we don't need to, you don't need to preserve anonymity. I know that some authors do that, that little one letter and then a hyphen when it comes to naming a place because they don't want to locate their story 
only in one city. They want you to be able to read it in whatever locale you are reading it in and be comfortable with that. But when it comes to a character's name, if you're not doing it for a narrative reason, don't do it. What about you, Damien? I'm not going to be a, a counterpoint to anything that's been mentioned. Uh, I, <laughs> I will say that it made it a thousand times better when I went back and decided that C was Count Dracula and this was an origin <laughs> story. Uh, it makes absolutely zero sense chronologically, nor why would somebody be referred to as the C in their title as opposed to their name, right? <laughs> but that doesn't matter at this stage. <laughs> that, we're that, that, no, that aside, yes. Yeah, we're throwing all logic by the wayside and just deciding to go with what the heart wants. And what I wanted was an origin story. So I went back and read it. I was like, perhaps this is the birth of vampirism. Ooh, I'm liking all Or of maybe this. the C is Lewis Carroll. That you know, could be, who it, be. Who, who it is. Yeah, It might be. There's a lot of fumes and, and inhalants and stuff in most of Lewis Carroll's work. So uh, I, I think that probably vibes. Oh, very, very true. Maybe it's the um, caterpillar. Yeah. So I, I <laughs> speaking of, speaking of other stories. Um, no, I mean, it, it, it was interesting. I found way too many similarities and parallels to another story mm-hmm. I was lukewarm about, which is The Mummy Soul. Mm-hmm. I thought The Mummy Soul had stronger writing, although this was definitely more approachable and I felt more as being a story told in the confession format. Um, so it it wasn't trying to flex you know, a massive lexicon or anything like that. It was just like keeping it real. But you can't sympathize with just a bumbling idiot. <laughs> with a dog murderer. A dog yeah, murderer, his, a friend murderer, yeah. a wife murderer. And but he didn't murder the beetle. No. He couldn't kill the bug. No, he couldn't he, manage he couldn't. that one. Too tough. I I like to think that maybe it had a crystalline carapace or a crystalline carapace that made it like uncrushable. And that's why he didn't do it and not just put it in a jar. <laughs> <laughs> We've got some other solutions. I can pickle here that. that <laughs> right. That's not just let the bug run wild. Right. Well, and and right. listen, I'm not one of these people that has to have their weird tales have perfectly repeatable science experiments in them. Like I'm, yeah. I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt on the science from time, you know, for the most part. Um, but l- let's make it a little bit believable. Yeah. You know, to the point where I'm like, hmm, I wonder about that. Maybe I should look that up if I want to find out if that's real or not. Um, don't just say like you mixed a bunch of things together and all of a sudden you've got this erupting flaming thing that sears the floor when it falls upon it. I I'm going to get beside myself magical, if I start too early. Yeah. <laughs> the uh, finding the magical book just by coincidence. Right? He's like, in a mm-hmm, library and he mm-hmm. happens to pull out the thing that and just happens you- to give that jigsaw piece that was missing about what. Ugh, ugh. And like presumably your friend would know what you're working on. And what's in his library. So it would <laughs> be that you would stumble on it. Your friend would be like, hey, you're trying to create You're trying to do this. Here's the book. I've got a book. Right. I've, I've got, got a, a book. book. <laughs> but just kind of like browsing and stumbling on it is, yeah. you know, a little lazy. Well, had he gone one more book over, he would have opened the secret passageway to a mummy's tomb. So I'm sort of glad that he didn't, you know, <laughs> he goes to pull a book and he hears that mechanism activate. And then all of a sudden something slides open. So, yeah. And one book to the left, he would have been at Victor Hugo's Les Miserables. And then he would have given a summary <laughs> of it. And we'd have been here a lot longer than we need to be anyway. Yeah. <laughs> so beetles seem to be a pretty popular bug to write about as we joked another Scarabaeus. But, you know, to the best of my knowledge... Beetles are not actually harmful to humans. They don't bite. And if they, even if they do bite you, they they don't inject a toxin. You just feel a slight pinch, I suppose. Nor do they have a toxin on their shell, on their carapace. They are dangerous to plants, wood. My radishes. Vegetables. (laughs) 
but not to not to people. So why this fascination with deadly beetles in literature? What what do you think? I think it's twofold. One, it's this time where we're fascinated by anything Egyptian, right? And these okay. are carved everywhere. Mm-hmm. But they also like, even though they're not, you know, good for anything or actually scary. They look cool. Like of all the bugs in the world, you got a shiny blue beetle crawling around. Like that's way better than, I don't know, an ant, a moth. They come in a bajillion shades and shininess sizes. They're pretty, but they're also like, some have like the little horn thing on them. Mm -hmm. You know, they make, they're loud when they fly. I don't know. It's it's the horned beetle. A dung beetle also (laughs) has a horn. I've got a different uh, answer, and I'm going to go with the fact that Coleoptera, which is the, is it the order? Oh, yeah, it's the order Coleoptera yeah. for beetles. It represents 40% of known insect species fall under Coleoptera, which are beetles. So it is the it is the most specially diverse subset of insects on the planet. And because of that, I think that that offers anyone who's writing about beetles the opportunity to, to create one and have the plausibility that it might exist in some way, shape, or form. So they can make it look like anything, fit like anything, but as long as it's a scarab, as long as it's a beetle, there's a possibility that something like this could exist. All right. That's, that- that's an interesting idea. In, uh, in Lovecraft's story, The Shadow Out of Time, he references how in the far future, uh, humanity is destroyed and beetles become the master race. Yeah. So he he too was fascinated with that concept. Yeah, I I think I think too. Um, I like both of those ideas, or all three of those ideas rather. But I think I, the one I'll add to it is the noise that they make, or that some of them make. Sure. This uh, this death tick that we hear about in this story sounds a lot like what I discovered was called the Death Watch Beetle, um, mm-hmm. which has long been considered a harbinger of death. It makes a tapping sound. Um, that sounds like the the uh, tapping of a clock or the clicking of a clock, and so people thought that when they heard that, it meant that they were they were soon to die. Um, interestingly enough, it's the Death Watch Beatles sound that was thought to be the primary influence on Edgar Allan Poe when he wrote the Telltale Heart. Well, that's so, cool. Yeah, kind of a neat neat connection there. <laughs> yeah. Um, where did the beetle in this story actually? come from though was it yeah, created like is. ex nihilo out of this juice or what yeah, or was juice. this a uh was this a uh honey i shrunk the kids sort of thing where a smaller no, beetle no, no. fell into the juice the, and then the book <laughs> hulked out the book. yeah <laughs> it ate some of that no, no, no. it ate some of that opal mold and just uh went highly venomous <laughs> right. all of a sudden so i read it as okay he reads the recipe he cooks up his goo uh to me the beetle the way he found it was like it was cracking out of kind of like an egg right the blue rock cracks open and what's inside of it a brand new beetle that yeah so he, he, poured, with- he poured this mixture over a rock and the beetle was inside the rock no we're dealing with an unreliable no, no. narrator what, what she's saying oh. is everything was condensed into that like gunk and then under the gunk was this crystalline structure and then when he cracked in the crystalline structure there was this beetle that happened to be the same color as the crystalline structure so logic would have us conclude that this beetle was born from inorganic matter that became organic. You got it. But I, I would like to think that with little hints, like we had to open the windows to let the vapors out, meaning that some bug came in, went down, ate some of that, and probably follows more under the instant transmutation uh, concept of eating something highly venomous that sort of killed it or put it into another state or something. And that made yeah, it the whole gamma ray. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Or teenage mutant. That was so that much is- a better illusion than honey. I shrunk the kids, but <laughs> 
<laughs> you can tell what I've been watching. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this guy is not even. He's no Rick Moranis. Doors. He's no Rick he's Moranis. He's not putting <laughs> lids on stuff like a bug could have just fallen in the goo. Yeah, but he's. I mean, he proves. I think what's key here is he proves himself to be an unreliable narrator, and because he's telling us his confession, uh, you know, the truth is in the mind of the beholder, and. He, I just don't believe a damn word he has to say. Proves himself to be a right, compulsory, like can- ignorant narrator. <laughs> no. I mean, he's just carrying around a bunch of poison. Like, there's a yeah. really good chance that no one got stung by a beetle. He's just splashing poison all over. Yeah, could, yeah very well. This could be a good origin story for one of those superhero movies, though. Yeah, totally. Maybe the superhero, the Blue Beetle. There is a, I think it's a DC superhero named the Blue Beetle. It's the a third string. The stringer. tick in blue? Did the, the tick, tick was wear blue? blue? Yeah, the yeah, tick the was tick, blue. Yeah. Okay, we'll say that this is the tick's origin story. The, from 1857. The tick was nigh beetle. invulnerable and he was not poisonous. And uh, he would Neither not destroy are the beetles. earth. We've covered this. He would not destroy <laughs> the earth because that is where he keeps his things. Okay. Please, can we have a moment of silence for Lalette the dog? The, yeah. <sighs> Lalette, well, we hardly knew me. We hardly There's going to be a new dog. As soon as I read about the dog, I knew that it was going to die. I mean, what? Oh, yeah. what's what's your it's take? Chekhov's gun. Right? <laughs> what's a dog your take in a room on with a dogs as foils for human pain, trauma, and otherwise eliciting emotional responses from human readers in literature? One of the websites that I go to the most is Does, Does the, the Dog, dog Die? die? <laughs> uh, Dot com. And it's, I mean, it's just such a trope, right? right. Like, oh, we're gearing up for something, but we got to start small. Right. So first, we're gonna your kill the dog. house plant wilts. And then right. second, your dog dies. And then third, your wife. Like, it's always that order. It's always like, now we know that something is really happening. So it's just kind of like become this trope uh, that's used all the time in everything to kind of signal ooh, our narrator. Like Jess, did you check? Does the dog die for this story? <laughs> I wrote my own entry for it. <laughs> <laughs> Fabulous. Have you read the short story from the 1800s by A.G. Gray Jr.? Right. First, check the internet. Yeah. You won't find anything about the story or the author other than a random website. Does the dog It is a really good point, Jess, that you talk about how it's like it's like this incremental, you know, increase of emotional attachment. And it starts with the right. dog. Dogs are disposable in this era. It was it, it, the only thing that made it sad is that it was his wife's favorite dog, and not <laughs> the fact that it was a living creature that entrusted its health and wellness. Well, to and then family. and then and then it went the to the servant. About, but it, we'll get her another dog. It'll be fine. I mean, that was funny. That 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 to me was <laughs> that to me was hilarious. He's like, I promised her I would get her another dog, and that way she felt better. No, you jackass! You just murdered her dog with a bug. So that's not. Yeah, cool. I'm not sure he actually stayed in the room to hear her response. It was oh, yeah. it was pretty menial. I mean, at this stage, yeah, I think that the reason that does the dog die is, as Jess said, it's it's very much a trope, and it is good because most people tend to feel more empathy when animals die in film than when people do, because that's the jaded society we've become. Right. right. But this was predating oh, yeah. that, so I just th- I just think it was an order of of magnitude: kill something that we can kill that off and not be people. too suspect, yeah. then kill a low caste human being. Then kill my friend, but still outside of the family. Then kill my wife. He doesn't wife. even have a name. Yeah. Count Dracula. Kill C. Kill Count Dracula. I'm telling you, <laughs> go back and read it as Count Dracula. You'll be like, <laughs> oh my gosh, everything makes sense. And then kill self, you know? So th- there was that upslope and I think that right. it was purposeful. So what do you think the author might be trying to say, given the fact the narrator created this beetle, set it free on the world 
and then had to suffer the consequences. Is there, I'm, 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 I'm grasping it for a deeper meaning here. Right. Like he's smart enough to figure out from this book how to create life in theory, but he's not smart enough to like keep an eye on it or open a window or not inhale toxic mystery fumes. So then it's, I don't know, you get this because you did this. This is your fault. Maybe, but I also, I'm going back to trying to add some complexity to what would otherwise be sort of a ho-hum story. And I see this as, no one else noticed the five-pointed bite mark. No one else commented on it. The medical professionals couldn't identify what disease people were dying from, but didn't see this giant bite mark on his friend's (laughs) neck, on the servant's breast. I just think that there is something that's going on that takes the confession part of this confession and applies it to a bug as opposed to something that I think Ryan mentioned earlier. Maybe this person was just out splashing poison around or was irradiated. Um, You know, like this is in your house. Yeah. Yeah. Like you're. Mm, your dog's going to be the first one to get irradiated yeah. if you lock it in a room with mystery fluids. Or, you know, it inhales vapors that you can't see anymore and they didn't come. Who knows? There could be a million different reasons, but his <laughs> his paranoia is sort of telltale heartish, right? His paranoia over this thing that might or might not exist is the only fun that we can have trying to break right. down the story or giving it a different angle or a different approach. It still, unfortunately, no wasn't else, fun enough. Right. No one else sees the bug, right? No one, Yeah, him? no one else sees the bug. Or hears or it. Or the bite. Yeah. He's the one that hears it. So I I looked up like what's going on in the world in 1857 to try to find maybe there's some, something happening, right? No, no. And this is a real, (laughs) this is going out on a limb, but right. This is only four years before the start of the civil war. And so when you think about the Hmm. idea that uh, the narrator created the problem, set the problem free on the world and then had to suffer the consequences uh, is this a, a metaphor for slavery, perhaps? Or am I that so far like out a, on the limb that, take, that it's cracking? That takes cracking? place in Europe? <laughs> uh, this isn't in Europe, is it? It is in London. Who's in London? His lab's in London. He's well, there goes that friends. idea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that's giving a lot of credit to a story that... I was, I was, I was trying. I was trying to give him pulpy. something. Yeah. Uh, like... This seems like I wrote it in a couple hours to try to get it right. published. Like there's a even comparing it to uh, the Mummy Soul, soul. Mummy Soul, um, which is you know similar. Like ooh, a mystery bug and bites no one else can see and miss yep. know, all these diseases. Like that one was written with some actual tension, and the you could hear the bug and the wife you know shakes and gets poisoned and he's writing it as a confession too but yeah, i don't know i thought that that one just seemed like it had more effort put into it this one seemed a little bit like okay afternoonish we're into mummies <laughs> yeah. yeah like yeah, yeah. all like, right sorry gray junior wherever you are whoever you are i tried to help dead. you but <sighs> i couldn't so let's talk about something far more serious than that any significance okay. to the number 5 let's talk about numerology pentagrams kind of close yeah that's one of the one of the significances F- 5 star it's also just super weird like i've never heard of a bite looking in that shape anything like that yeah and and when it was born like didn't it come out of the center dot in that pattern so that the the four dots around it didn't really have anything to do with it the the four natural in alchemy there's the four natural substances right oh yeah I'm you're, an yeah you're you're, sure. you're, <laughs> you're you're going um, beyond my ability here <laughs> okay <laughs> 
But you can say whatever you want and we'll believe it. So <laughs> I know I caught you. Uh, I think at some point recently, what, what episode was it where I threw out an absolute lie and you all were like, is that serious? And I said, no, yes, I remember, no, yes, not I remember that one. Yeah. It was, that, it was, that was a Brob Dignagian and Lilliputian episode because no, but that you, was real. That no, was, that real. one was real, but then that you was... did it again. and it was fake. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, in, in, in religion, the number five plays uh, a significant role uh, across the board, right? So in Islam, you have the five pillars of Islam and Judaism, uh-huh. you have the five books of the Torah. In Christianity, you have the five wounds of Christ. In Hinduism, you have the five faces of Shiva. And in hmm. uh, Sikhism, you have five sacred symbols. So five is all over religion. Um, but this was not a religious story, particularly. This was a scientific story. And so this is the one that I at least am settling on the scientific significance of the number five being the atomic number of boron, because this story was boring. Oh, uh, <laughs> that was a big setup there, Padre. That was, that was we really leap. sat that one out. <laughs> but while I waited for that rim shot to occur, thank you very much. I did remember what I was thinking of. There are five essential elements in alchemy. It's okay. earth, wind, fire, water and the void Ooh, heart or, and by our powers <laughs> planet. yeah, yeah. <laughs> no but there's there's the four natural elements and then the fifth which is supernatural which could be the significance here is that this thing emerged this is a supernatural. supernatural thing okay right. i'll go with that it's also it's also the birth speaking of word origins with brobig nagy and getting brought up it's also the origin of quintessential when you talk about quintessential yeah, it's the five. five essential elements from from alchemy that's the nice. origin of that word as well there you go that's a that's a good one well, but so- no it was it was also boron <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I'm stretching on this one, y'all. Wow. So what did you think of the writing? I think, Jess, you mentioned that you thought it was a little boron. Yeah, it was pretty boron. Uh, (laughs) The introduction in particular, where it's just like, it takes a while to get to the point of anything. I mean, nothing grabs you right Mm -hmm. away. And then the end where he's just like, and also, this is a confession and I'm going to die. It's just like, well, yeah, I mean, I got it. I liked that the title shows it's a confession. I like the idea of it being a confession. I don't really think it delivered on either of those things. Like, you know, he killed his wife and dog and servant and whatever, you know, like. Yeah, what was the need for the it. confession other than, I guess, maybe a. Here's what happened is because he faked his death, made off for Marrakesh yeah. and just left a note behind trying to explain why all these people were close to him were dead. The only people who would be able to track him down the road. So I think he, he made off with some other finding that was in the book or maybe he actually alchemically created gold. And just created this whole backstory. I don't know. I'm trying to give it some Ocean's Eleven. Right, spin that would gonna... make it more exciting. <laughs> so I, I generally share Jess's opinion of, of the writing. There was one set of sentences though that I did enjoy because I'm a, I'm a sucker for good alliteration. And so mm-hmm. this was on page 31. <laughs> Junior writes, "I was left alone in the house all that long, lonely night. I waited in each room, listening for that fearful death tick." Never lover waited more anxiously for a loving whisper from loved lips mm-hmm. than I for that hideous sound. But save the hushed murmur of the mighty city and the clang of the slow hours as they passed and the beating of my own heart, all was silence. I thought that was a well-written sentence, series of sentences with the alliteration of the L sound concluding with silence. I would agree. And I wonder how much of it was the intention of Gray Jr. to give this broken clock idiot scientist like 
his two times of being the right time during the course of a day, right? right? Broken clock is right twice a day. <laughs> Occasionally he'll come out with a gem, but the right. rest of it was pretty, pretty trite. I don't know. And if this so, guy was friends with Lewis Carroll, maybe this is the moment where Lewis Carroll was like, give me that. And he, let me fix this for you. <laughs> right. <laughs> wrote, Do something wrote like this. Wrote, wrote yeah. four sentences. <laughs> and he's like, like this, this is great. Okay. I will. <laughs> that, that would be pretty funny. Again, like going with the theme of having a highly unreliable narrator and just seeing like how much of this is scheming, how much of this is self-preservation, how much of this is unwillingness to admit to your wrongdoings versus intention or accidental poisoning of everyone around sure. you. I think when you try and like say, what is the actual motivation here and read it beyond the surface, it does give it a little more interest, but Beyond that, the writing itself and with the occasional like nice little passage, it wasn't anything that really stood out. It, it was it was a vanilla story that I will forget if it weren't for this podcast. Yeah, it was perfectly pedestrian and 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 even a, a mixture of styles at times. Like like Jess said at the beginning, you know, there was this sort of weird stream of conscious introduction. Yeah, and then this confession proceeds, which is interrupted by this beautiful sentence that Lewis Carroll wrote. Concludes, <laughs> you know, Brian's made up his mind, folks. Yes, yep. <laughs> or maybe Count Dracula wrote that. He's like, let maybe. me fix this for well, you. Give, give me your pain. <laughs> My Count Dracula uh, is as good as your Scottish accent, by the way. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, we're starting a new podcast, folks. Accents by Damien and Ryan uh, yeah. coming to you soon. So, what not to do. Did the scare hold up? I think the scare of a spooky bug did not. But I think similar to um, the Wicked Flea, the like fear of just having some dumb scientist in your neighborhood <laughs> just doing whatever they want. <coughs> like this is the guy who's building something in his backyard and it just turns into a bomb and you just didn't know. Like you don't right. know what your <laughs> what your neighbors are doing. Like I think that's scarier. It's just like, why do you have all these chemicals in your house? It was That's I, generous. Yeah, I <laughs> We know that silly scientists with perfect labs have random chemicals and they're just waiting to see what they're spitting in it. They're throwing in trash. They're they're just like leaving the windows open and walking away. They're rubbing a banana in it. They're throwing the dog in the room. They're doing whatever they can. Um, I, you know, it's, it's going to sound weird, but I actually think that the scare for what it was and what it was intending to be. Yes, it does hold up. It's this unknown entity that kills, kills quickly, kills brutally. The passage, I didn't talk about this in the recap, but before his friend C dies, he says, I need some water. And when he gives him water, oh, yeah. he says, no, I don't want this vile vitriol. I want mm -hmm. water. But he gave him water. So I'm thinking right. it's because it's not blood because he's Count Dracula. Because he's Count Dracula. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He's, he's bloodthirsty, which is why when the bug was offered the sugar, he's like, nah, fam, I want Lalette. Give me Lillette. So the scare of becoming a Dracula. So the, so the scare of just the unknown as to what exactly killed these people, killed them so quickly, like what was it? Um, and not having resolution and having an unreliable confession being the only window into the action. It was adept, but it wasn't spectacular. And the, I don't the, think this was the very poor scary. pedestrian writing was kind of blah. But I'm just yeah. saying the scare held up. I'm not. I wasn't scared, but I'm saying the intended scare. <laughs> I'm not even. We see say that. The we see that. We up. see that in modern, you know, horror. We see that in like, um, what was that Guillermo del Toro Chuck Hogan collaboration? 
Um, oh, the strain, the, the strain, the strain. It yeah. was very, very similar. It was this parasitic bug that could right. infect you. And then it turned you into this like, you know, blood sucking man eating creature, blah, blah, blah. So who knows if it went that path, it, it could have held up. And we still see it in today's um, contemporary horror. I, for whatever reason, the whole beetle thing bothers me. And that's what makes it not scary for me. And to side with Jess that it, the scare didn't hold up even as a scary bug, right? There are so many more scary bugs you could pick. Pick a scorpion. This is a scorpion. This might become a terrifying story. Mm-hmm. But a beetle is not dangerous. But that's the point. That's uh, like, what if it was a killer banana? I'm, I got bananas <laughs> on the brain. Does anyone have some potassium I could take? I don't know. There's no, better stories to argue some, about. Let's take the whiskey that's ratings. Innocuous. Fine, fine. All right. Damien, what are you going with? Uh, two and a half. It didn't blow me away. But again, when I added my own complexity to it, I'm probably giving an extra half finger it doesn't deserve because I created a different story than what was intended. <laughs> <laughs> so, but I'll, I'll sit with uh, half a fist. Two and a half. Jess? Two, I think. Not scary, not great. You know, I don't mind mad scientists. Like, that's a little bit spooky. But the bu- uh, bug element, eh, two. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm going with two as well. This, this was not a well-written story. It was a little boring. It didn't have a particularly scary element to it for me. And as, as Damien said... This is this is going to be a forgettable one. I don't think this is this is one of the ones we're going to be talking about years to come. When we remember when we did that podcast, good pick, Jess. <laughs> you know what I remember? A blue beetle. The confession colon. Wait, no, no not, not quite. All right, Jess. I think you have our if this then that. I do. Um, if you want a better story there about mad scientists, animal experiments, creating life, the fallout of doing bad science with real minimal ethics. Um, The 2017 Jeff Vandermeer novel, Born, Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. could be generously read as a sequel to this one. (laughs) Um, Wow, very generous. (laughs) There are um, a few other novella offshoots if you like the Born novel too. But worth checking out if you you like this theme but want it done better. Yes, definitely better. Well, thank you for that. If this, then that. That takes us to the end of this episode, friends. Thank you so much for joining us here on Whiskey and the Weird. As always, we hope that you will take just a few moments to rate and review this podcast wherever you listen. That really does help us get noticed. And the more we get noticed, the more inspired we become to continue to bring you great podcasts. (laughs) On obscure <laughs> stories. Shower us with affection, folks. Shower that's what, us that's with well, affection. That is Give our blue that goo. Hit. That is our opal mold. All right. <laughs> Give <laughs> us our blue, our blue crystal. You know, that's Ooh. what we need. We do, we do rely on those ratings and reviews and share us on social media. That really helps us to get out there as well. We also want to thank Dr. Blake Brandis for providing the music for Whiskey and the Weird. Damien, where can they find us on social media? Speaking of those socials, if you're on Twitter, we're at Whiskey Weird Pod, at Whiskey Weird Pod on Twitter. You can also find us on Instagram, which is mostly pictures of Jess's dog, Gus. He's a delight. Heck yeah. <laughs> at Whiskey <laughs> and the Weird, at Whiskey and the Weird on Instagram. We spell our whiskeys with an E, and we hope you do too. If not, we're going to write another story about a beetle that kills everyone who loves you and then <laughs> flies out a window. And we're going to put you in it but we're only going to put the first letter of your name. So we're talking to you, B. (laughs) (laughs) Jess, what's our next story? Up next, an Egyptian hornet by your friend and mine, Algernon Blackwood. I am looking forward to Blackwood, one of my favorites. Well, I'm Ryan Whitley. 
I'm Jessica Berg. And I'm Damian Smith. And together, we're Whiskey and the Weird. Someone send us home. As always, keep your friends through the ages and your creeps in the pages. Thank you so much, everybody. Good night.